The old pilot's plain tales. Capture prone. I'm going back a wee while now to my time in the military, and I remember that we used to be given resistance to interrogation, or RTI, training. This used to be fairly low-key, and you only got the tough stuff if you were unlucky or silly enough to volunteer for the long combat survival course. I got fairly close to being given the treatment, hours in stress positions, under a hood, listening to white noise, etc., during the Bad Colgrub winter survival course. This particular course was famous, not for the week in the Bavarian countryside up to one's thighs in snow, but for the eight days of skiing that we were also subjected to. The end of the field training included a 20-kilometre march through the night to reach an RV from where we would be rescued and spend the rest of the day in a beautiful hot spa. Of course, if we were captured by the German ski troops who were out looking for us, then you could substitute the hot spa with its compulsory no-clothes policy for 24 hours in a dank, freezing cellar where no clothes were also frequently compulsory. The point of the process was to familiarise the individual with a small taste of what it might be like to be captured and also allow the interrogators an opportunity to practice their art on some live bodies. They weren't allowed to have a go at just anyone since their activities would probably fall under the UN's definition of torture. This treatment could only be justified for a special class of military personnel called capture-prone. During the Cold War, extensive preparations had been made to bring downed air crews back across the East German border using brave underground resistance groups that, despite being on the wrong side of the border, were committed to help the West. These groups, in a similar way to the French resistance during the Second World War, had volunteered to provide concealment and transport to air crews in danger of capture. The risk that they lived under, even on a day-to-day basis, had their participation ever become known to the Soviet authorities, was considerable and had they ever had to put their plans into action, they risked being executed as collaborators with the West. Near the border on the West side, others had also joined such groups, anticipating the day that during the war they might end up on the wrong side of the front. In peacetime, during major exercises, some of these groups would practice the methods that they would use for real, with volunteer aircrew who played the part and spent days, sometimes a week or more, living in cellars and being bundled into hiding places in cars as the underground transported them to safety. I expect that things have changed a lot now, but back then only aircrew and special forces were considered capture-prone. As things moved on and we transitioned from the Cold War to more recent conflicts, In a variety of theatres, this training has become compulsory and a lot more serious. Of course, ejecting, bailing out or crash landing and ending up in the hands of the enemy isn't a new thing. 
It's been happening for as long as air forces have been around, so has always been a concern to military pilots, but something that is generally thought to be just part of the job. That's a pretty flippant statement, considering what I'm about to talk about later, but you only have to listen to Glenn Torpy's interview to hear what he thought about one of the RAF's ideas, the Ghoulie Chit. Otherwise known as a blood chit, it was a letter written in the local dialect which promised the finder a large reward should they return the bearer to friendly authorities with everything intact, hence the name Ghoulie Chit. To back up the promise, the downed airman carried a number of gold sovereigns which could be used as a down payment. As a signatory to the Geneva Convention, RAF personnel should always expect to be treated in a humane manner, so long as your captors are also bound by it, and if they can be bothered to afford the crew that has just bombed their homeland such luxuries. Of course, there are some notable countries which have not agreed to abide by the convention, and many guerrilla groups, freedom fighters, irregular armies and such, that would probably have never even heard of it. If one were to fall into such hands, then anything might, and has, happened. Even amongst enemies, such as Germany and the Allied forces during the Second World War, when prisoner treatment should have been guaranteed, things sometimes didn't go as they should. This tale gets rather dark here, so perhaps not ideal for young ears, but it is a well-documented part of history. It's the story of the Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am boys. Now, Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am was a consolidated B-24 Liberator bomber of the United States Army Air Force that had been on a bombing mission over Hanover on the 24th of August 1944. Its target had been an airfield, but it was hit by anti-aircraft fire and the crew were forced to abandon their crippled aircraft and parachute to safety. As they came down near a town called Hutterup, a lookout alerted the local fire brigade and a military detachment at the nearby airfield that enemy airmen were amongst them, and patrols were sent out to find the Americans. One of the nine Americans had been hit by shrapnel in the belly and was in a bad way, but he was lucky enough to land near a farmhouse, and the elderly couple there gave him first aid in return for his silk parachute. It didn't take more than a few hours to capture the crew, and they were taken to the town hall of Grieven for interrogation, after which the injured man was taken to a clinic to receive medical attention whilst the rest were incarcerated at the local airbase for the night. The next morning, leaving their wounded colleague behind to receive further treatment, the remainder of the crew were put on a train to begin their journey to the Dulag Luft, prisoner of war camp, near Frankfurt. The journey was slow, with frequent stops along the way, at which, as soon as the local German civilians noticed that Americans were on the train, Crowds would form at the windows, shouting in anger at the terror flyers, shaking their fists and spitting on the windows. 
That evening, the RAF launched a large bombing raid of 116 Lancasters to bomb the Opal factory at Russelsheim. They dropped 617 2,000-pound bombs and 40,000 incendiaries on their target, destroying much of the plant and damaging the rail tracks as well. This was by far the largest and most destructive attack made on Russelsheim up to that point. Inevitably, there was considerable damage also done to the town, and a local air raid warden helped to organise the residents to put out the fires. The next morning, the train carrying the Liberator crew continued its journey until the damaged rail tracks brought their train to a halt. The German guards took the prisoners off and then marched them through the town to continue their journey from the other side. The townspeople, in the aftermath of the recent devastating air raid, saw the Allied airmen and immediately assumed that they had been part of the attack on their town the previous night. As the crowd grew, it began to look ugly. Two women shouted out, There are the terror flyers. Tear them to pieces. Beat them to death. They have destroyed our houses. One of the Americans could speak German, and he replied, It wasn't us. We didn't bomb Russelsheim. But the townsfolk either didn't believe them, or perhaps it really didn't matter to them. Afterwards, they claimed that they mistook the airmen for Canadians from the RAF raid. The situation was becoming uncontrollable as the crowd turned into an angry lynch mob. As is often the case in these awful situations, it only takes one spark to light the fuse and it was a woman throwing a brick at the unarmed Americans that started the attack. During the riot that followed, the townspeople attacked the defenceless prisoners with rocks, hammers, sticks and shovels. Three opal workers arrived with iron bars and started beating the men to death to the cries of encouragement from the crowd. Whilst their German guards stood by doing absolutely nothing, the men were beaten to the ground, whereupon the air raid warden lined the men up in the gutter and shot them in the head. Six men were murdered, and all of them would have died there, except that the warden ran out of ammunition. They loaded the bloody bodies onto a cart and dragged them to a local cemetery. Any that made a noise were beaten again. All of them would have been murdered, but for providence, in the form of another bombing attack, and as the air raid siren sounded, the mob scattered. From under their dead comrades, William Adams and Sidney Brown crawled, somehow still alive. Despite their injuries, the pair escaped and evaded capture, heading for the Rhine River. Their freedom lasted four days until a policeman discovered them, and on their recapture they were eventually taken to the POW camp that had been their original destination. A year later, 
the town fell to the advancing Allied armies and the atrocity came to light. Eleven residents of the town were tried for the murders. After a six-day trial, one was acquitted. Others received various jail sentences, but of the main players, the two women were sentenced to 30 years, whilst others, including the air raid warden, were executed. Later, a soldier was also found guilty and hanged as well. During the trial, the accused defended themselves by claiming that they had been incited to commit the crime by Goebbels' propaganda. That encouraged German people to take reprisals against downed airmen. Their defence was dismissed by the prosecution, who stated they were all grown-up men and women. If they are called upon to commit the murder, and they do, they are just as responsible as any other murderers. He also quoted the Geneva and Hague Conventions, of which Germany was a signatory, which stated that prisoners of war must at all times be humanely treated and protected, particularly against acts of violence, insults and public curiosity. Measures of reprisal against them are prohibited. And it is especially forbidden to kill or wound an enemy who, having laid down his arms or having no longer means of defence, has surrendered. I believe I can see how easy it must have been to vent anger and bring death to those who were just doing their military duty, however destructive and heinous it might have seemed to those on the ground, and how they might have justified their actions by saying that the air crews had murdered innocent civilians. This is a moral dilemma that many with a greater understanding than mine by far have pondered over, and the conclusion remains, even a war must be fought with rules. But what of the other side? Hundreds of German bombers laid waste to parts of London and many other cities. German air crews were shot down and captured. Egged on by Churchill's rhetoric, surely those, for example, of the East End, who suffered bombings for night after night, and who are renowned for their straight-talking and down-to-earth attitudes, must have taken out their anger on Luftwaffe pilots. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, there is very little evidence of any British equivalent atrocities, and I say unsurprisingly only because it is the victors who write the history books and conduct the war crime trials. However, in 1940, a Dornier DO-17 was attacked by several fighters over London. With his aircraft crippled, the pilot, Oberleutnant Robert Zieb, had abandoned his aircraft and was floating down towards the city. Zieb was to come down in Kennington, his parachute fouling on a telegraph pole, leaving him some feet from the ground. Drawn out into the streets by the sound of the overhead battle, the people of Kennington watched as the German descended on them. So far, all is fact and traceable, 
It's what happened next that is shrouded in myth and half-truth. The crowd that had gathered around Zeb were in an angry mood. Of that there seems to be no doubt. A local ARP warden was to record in his diary, Enemy parachutists descended amongst hostile populace in Kennington. A reporter from the Daily Herald was also to note that Zeb was to state, Camarada, Camarada, I'm an officer, I'm an officer. Some sources still state that the hapless Zeb came down in Kennington where he was fiercely attacked by a mob of angry civilians. No one doubts that Zeb died from his wounds, but these included bullet wounds as well as burns. It's possible that the mob was mainly made up of women who were after one thing, the silk of Zeb's parachute. Grabbing him by the legs, they attempted to pull him down from his entrapment on the telegraph pole. No doubt, faced with a shouting, baying crowd, he was in some distress. However, some sources remain adamant that, when Robert Zeeb descended on London, there was a violent assault against the German airmen. The local police reported that a Superintendent Gillies of Kennington Road Police Station rescued Robert Zeeb from a lynch mob and arrested him. The police van then drove off, taking Zeeb to Millbank Military Hospital, where he died the next day. The local police later handed a leather case with some personal items as well as documents belonging to Robert Zeeb to the RAF. This same case was later presented to Superintendent Gillies, who in turn left it to the Metropolitan Police Museum, where it still resides. Robert Zeeb rests in the military section of Brookwood Cemetery, that Woking in Surrey, England. If you enjoyed this story, I'd be very grateful if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.